0: Okay, now it's my pleasure to introduce our speaker of today, David Barsamian. He's going to be talking from his book, Global Discontents, Rising Threats to Democracy. I'm sure many of you know David's history, but let me read a little bit here so you really appreciate the great thing that he serves. One of America's most tireless and wide-ranging investigative journalists, David Barsamian, has altered the independent media landscape, both with his weekly radio show, Alternative Radio, now in his 34th year, wow, and his books with Noam Chomsky, Ekbol Ahmed, Howard Zinn. Tariq Ali, Richard Wolf, Sarunthi Roy, and Edward Said, I believe. His latest books are with Noam Chomsky, Global Discontents, Rising Threats to Democracy, and a new edition with Edward Said, The Culture and Resistance. Um, he is winner of the Media Education Award, the ACLU's Upton Sinclair Award for Independent Journalism, and the Cultural Freedom Fellowship from Lenan Foundation, the Institute for Alternative Journalism named him one of its top 10 media heroes. It's always good to know a hero. That's great. <laughs> he is the recipient of the Lifetime Achievement Awards from the Rocky Mountain Peace and Justice Center and the South Asian Network for Secularism and Democracy. He has collaborated with the world-renowned Cronus Quartet in events in New York, London, Vienna, and San Francisco. And to plug your radio show, which is kind of cool, Alternative Radio airs on CFRO, that's a Vancouver station, 100.5 FM on Tuesdays from noon until one o'clock. So please welcome David Brassemi to our meeting today. David.
1: Well, good morning, brothers and sisters, comrades. It's wonderful to see your beautiful smiling faces here on this rainy Sunday morning in Vancouver. Thanks to Dan for uh, coordinating this effort. I just want to make one correction. Uh, CFRO, which is at 100.5 FM, just moved alternative radio to Thursday mornings at 9. So from 9 to 10 a.m. every Thursday, you can hear the live broadcast. And then you can go to, if you have this... technical facility, you can go to the Alternative Radio website or you can go to the CFRO website and they archive the audio there. So if you miss it, uh, that's one way to do that. Um, Before we start, I want to hand out a sign-up sheet so that I can keep in touch with you and you can find out more about Alternative Radio. But there is one stipulation, uh, and that is you have to write clearly. Often, when I go back to Boulder, I can't read half the names or the email addresses. And please be, you know, confident. I'm not going to share this with CSIS because they already have all your information. (laughs) So, this will just be for alternative radio. And if you don't want to sign, that's fine too. There you go. Well, where does one start with your election? tomorrow that's a really interesting thing happening that will have a big impact uh, directly on this province and on this country, or do we want to talk a little bit about the uh, shenanigans going on in that that country just below Canada you know it 's a pretty large country i was I was thinking more of Guatemala or El Salvador smaller countries that are insignificant that do not have any kind of global footprint and uh, and are is exemplified by extreme humility and modesty Uh, particularly with the uh, great leader now sitting in the oral orifice (laughs) also known as the oval office I never know which one which one it is Um, he just passed uh, his thousandth day in office in the orifice and uh, the Washington Post which is owned by Jeff Bezos which means Amazon, uh, has been compiling a list of fabrications, prevarications that the great leader, I, I hesitate to even utter his name because, he, you know, he, he's such an awe-inspiring figure. Uh, in th- the first thousand days of his regime in Washington, there have been 13,000 documented uh, prevarications. I use that word prevarication not to show off my vocabulary, but then there's usually one person in an audience that doesn't know what it means and that gives me the chance to say what it means in plain English. Lies. Yes, we have someone who is lying on a rate that, you know, any uh, Canadian hockey fan would be impressed with. Uh, 13,000 in a a 1,000 a day. That's a pretty good clip. You'd have to work very hard uh, to match uh, that level of uh, lying that is being uh, generated. So we have a a very chaotic uh, situation uh, in that republic uh, to your south, and uh, it promises to get even more chaotic and more perilous uh, in the coming months uh, as this impeachment inquiry Uh, moves forward. Uh, It's unlikely that uh, the great prevaricator, as I call him, uh, will be uh, convicted in the Senate, at least until now. The U.S. has a very screwed up kind of system, unlike Canada, right? Um, In terms of how do we get rid of someone in office that uh, is guilty of crimes, high crimes and misdemeanors? Malfeasance, corruption, whatever it may be. There are articles of impeachment that are drawn up in the lower house, that is to say the House of Representatives or the Congress. And then that information is passed to the Senate where there is a trial. There's an impeachment trial. Now there are a couple of you here actually, just a couple, that remember in 1998 uh, another American president was uh, impeached uh, but was not convicted in the Senate. Uh, and that was for, you know, a picadillo, uh, which he uh, readily acknowledged uh, later. Uh, the crimes committed by this particular occupant uh, on the White House are simply off the scale and by any historical measurement uh, are, is absolutely breathtaking and jaw-dropping uh, from enriching himself and his business brand uh, Trump Towers Resort. Well, I said his name, but that's that's the buildings, the the golf golf courses, uh, the fancy hotels, and all of that. Uh, still enriching himself, uh, you know, through contracts and people currying favor with with him. Now you have to ask yourself the question. I think we ask ourselves the question in the U.S. You know. How could someone so singularly unfit, so singularly unqualified, uh, be elected to the to be the leader of the free world? We can talk more about how free the free world is uh, a bit a bit later, if you like. And I think uh, we have to be pretty ruthless and um, caustic in our analysis. That is to say. Uh, the great prevaricator tapped in to certain impulses very deep in the the soil in the United States. Impulses of xenophobia, of racism, of homophobia, of patriarchy. Uh, All of these things are not very far below the surface uh, in the U.S. And along comes someone who is a television personality... Uh, For 14 years, he had a program called The Apprentice in which the climactic ending was you're fired. Uh, And so he had an enormous amount of name recognition. But the backdrop, I think, needs to be explored in terms of understanding, you know, how could 63 million of my fellow citizens turn out to vote for someone of this, objectively speaking, very low uh, character and very uh, low capabilities. And again, I think, you know, you have to go to what has happened to not just the U.S. economy, but I suspect uh, in Canada as well, since the introduction of neoliberal economics. I think that's the key. Yes, there there is racism, there's xenophobia, there is patriarchy, but what has happened... To people's incomes and their standard of living over the last forty years, because that 's when neoliberalism was uh, introduced uh, has had an an enormous negative impact on people's lives, particularly uh, in the u s so neoliberalism you know this is the <coughs> very quick description of it involves a massive deregulation so before when we had government agencies that were there to protect the people against corporate corruption and and faulty products like planes that you know don't respond to software changes boeing is going through that uh, right now and other you know chemicals in our food gmos and all of those other things there was there were supposed to be regulations to protect the people from that they have largely been uh, eliminated under neoliberalism. Uh, this is to make it the proponents of this do this to make it easy for business for our great entrepreneurs to make more money to innovate to create more jobs. This is the propaganda that accompanies that. That you know we're making life easier for people who then will make our lives uh, easier. But in fact, uh, they have enriched themselves. In the four decades of neoliberalism. Uh, In the United States alone, it has seen the greatest transfer of wealth from the 99% to the 1%. So there has been a huge transfer of wealth from the have nots to the super haves, let's say, the haves and the have nots. And we have, so then there are these tax loopholes. Uh, in the U.S. There's all kinds of tax breaks. Uh, there's, you know, pro- the probability of more and more uh, privatization, cuts in benefits, in health care, in uh, daycare centers, in uh, dental care, all of these other things people depend on in the U.S. Uh, there's been a rollback uh, in the quality of Uh, life for many many people. So given that background then you have someone come along who has enormous name recognition and orange hair and is extremely wealthy, right? And so he comes along and like charlatans throughout history uh, says, I know, I feel your pain, I understand what you're going through, Uh, I'm gonna fix it. And then You know, he carries out this campaign. We know why you are suffering. It's because of the immigrants. It's the Arabs. It's the people who want to come to our country and steal our jobs and rape our women and, you know, create chaos here in the world's leader, leading uh, democracy. So the great prevaricator was very successful in convincing a lot of people that their problems are being caused not by elites, not by the 1%, not by Wall Street and the bankers and the hedge funds. And Incidentally, I just learned this morning that PostMedia is the largest media conglomerate here in Canada. You all know about that, right? PostMedia. It's owned by a Wall Street hedge fund. I didn't realize that. Quite extraordinary. Your most powerful media conglomerate. Uh, in Canada is, is owned and controlled by a Wall Street uh, hedge fund. And this, this is not good for democracy. This is not good for the communication needs of any society, uh, much less uh, Canada. in us, we have about five corporations that control most of the media, that is to say, TV, radio, newspapers. Uh, and magazines, not a healthy situation for any democracy to have that kind of concentration of power. Uh, and again one of the hallmarks of neoliberalism uh, since it was introduced around uh, 1980 was more and more concentration in, m- in more and more industries. So take, take healthcare for example or pharmaceuticals. Uh, There have been mergers and takeovers. And so where there used to be a modicum of competition, there's now more monopoly control. Because these capitalists, and that's who they are, they're capitalist managers, uh, they like to pretend uh, and their party line is, "We, we love competition. That's what capitalism is all about. But in fact, they pursue policies to eliminate co- uh, competition, they want monopoly control. Why? They can maximize profits. It's pretty elementary, but you know, the, the corporate media in the US don't report on this in any detail because they themselves are owned by large capitalist corporations. So this man, the orange haired man, comes along who's very skillful at scapegoating who has, according to his first or second wife, I'm not sure, I think it's um, Ivana uh, Trump, she said that he had a copy of Hitler's speeches uh, at his night table and would refer to them. Now, I don't know if that's true or not, but you can see certain similarities between what happened in the Third Reich in the 19. Late 1920s and early 1930s, and throughout, uh, and what is going on here in the US. That is to say, propaganda becomes extremely dominant and sophisticated. So there is a drumbeat of messages repeated over and over again. You know, lock her up, build the wall, drain the swamp. Who will pay for the wall? Mexico will pay for the wall. Those kinds of messages repeated over and over again is right out of Joseph Goebbels' propaganda uh, textbook. Goebbels was Hitler's propaganda minister, you know, often described as a genius of uh, propaganda. Keep, have very simple messages and repeat them over and over again until people just, you know, reflect them back. So yes, you know, it is, it's the immigrants, it's the Mexicans, it's the Arabs, it's the Muslims. Be afraid is the subtext, because they're coming. They're coming to get you, they're coming to, you know, they're coming to, to erode your standard of living. Now, this is, again, rather ironic, since the economic policies of the ruling elite in the U.S. and probably in Canada as well, uh, has, you know, generated enormous income and wealth inequality, not equality. We're moving in opposite directions from where there should be more uh, equality. And that's a direct result of property, of, of propaganda and, and the constant drumbeat of uh, messages. So people ask me, you know, is the U.S. heading toward fascism or, you know, what's, what's going on? There's already a whiff of fascism uh, in the country below the 49th parallel. Uh, it's, and that whiff, whiff is getting stronger uh, by the day. Uh, people like me and my profession are called the enemy of the American people. That's right out of Stalin's mouth. I mean, this is, this is coming right from the Politburo in the Kremlin in the 1930s, when anyone who was critical of the state or the leader of the state was immediately denounced as an enemy of the people. You have to watch the language here because it's extremely manipulative and uh, shapes people's opinions about uh, the media, about how society is organized, uh, who benefits from the economic system uh, as well. And Germany was no ordinary country. This is, of course, in the 1920s, uh, Germany is at, at the peak of Western civilization. So we're not talking about some backwater insignificant uh, country in, in you know, Central Asia or uh, in Eastern Europe. We're talking about the most sophisticated society in, in the world at that time. Up to 75% of all scientific papers uh, in the 1920s and early 1930s, was written in German. It was the language of science. It was the language of theater, of Kurt Weil, of Bertolt Brecht, a great poet. Literature, Thomas Mann and Franz Werfel. Uh, Germany was in uh, architecture. W- uh, the Gropius School of Architecture, the Bauhaus, uh, Wal- Walter Gropius, was the rage uh, in Europe. So you had a, you know, a very sophisticated country, very reasonable, excelling in the arts and the scientists and the sciences. How could that country, within three or four years, descend into utter barbarism, in, into one of the cruelest and uh, most violent regimes uh, in history? So in that country to your south, you know people say, "Well, it can't happen here." It can happen here. It has happened here before. In fact, uh, the population is so illiterate in terms of knowing history uh, in the country I come from, uh, they don't realize that when the great prevaricator says America first, that he's actually echoing a slogan from a neo-Nazi party in the 1930s that was led by Charles Lindbergh. So, you know, a little, a little history as uh, the great Howard Zinn, the radical historian, and one of my mentors, uh, would say, a little history can be a dangerous thing, because if, as Santayana, the Spanish philosopher, said, if you don't know the past, then you're condemned to repeat it. And so we see how things change in a cyclical way. So, what could happen and what did happen, not just in Germany, but in Italy, in Spain is now happening in multiple countries around the world, including the United States of America. Look at Hungary. Look at Viktor Orban in Hungary. Look at the Czech Republic with Zeman. Look at Austria with uh, Sebastian Ur. Uh, Look at uh, India with Modi, supposedly the world's largest democracy, uh, is run by a Hindu nationalist who is an Islamophobe, who has uh, you know, permitted many atrocities against uh, minorities. And basically in the US nobody knows about this because India has also a very successful uh, propaganda machine uh, operating uh, that labels Pakistan as a terrorist state and India as a kind of a victim of uh, terrorism. The same kind of narrative that we see in the Middle East, uh, Israel is the victim of terrorism, uh, and, uh, you know, the Palestinians and the Arabs are the perpetuators of terrorism. So you have a complete flip around where the victim uh, becomes the victimizer and the victimizer is the victim. So just today, uh, you know, we see what's happening in terms of uh, the Middle East, uh, the, what's going on at the uh, border with uh, Syria and Turkey. I can, you know, talk about this uh, at length. Uh, it is supposed to be a, a great, be- the critics of the orange haired man are saying this is a, a betrayal of U.S. values. Well, what hypocrisy. I mean, first of all, the Kurds have been sold out by the U.S. on multiple occasions. Most recently, in 1991, after the first Gulf War, uh, when the U.S. encouraged the Kurds to rise up against Saddam Hussein, Hussein and they did. Uh, and then the U.S. didn't help them out at all. And they were slaughtered in uh, great numbers. Uh, and now again, you see history uh, repeating itself. Uh, going back to uh, America First, that was a, a neo-Nazi movement. Uh, Hugh, Huey Long, who was an American fascist politician in the 1930s, he was governor of Louisiana, uh, also a senator from that state. Uh, he once predicted that if fascism ever comes to the United States, I don't know if he said if or when. There's some controversy about that. Let's say when. When fascism comes to the United States, it'll be wrapped in an American flag inside a Bible. So you'll have, you know, God and country and, you know, and uh, patriotism, the flag, you know, and, and all of that. So Chomsky, I just want to say, Coming together is really important. So I'm glad that you have a place on, on Sundays to gather, uh, to overcome, uh, isolation and, you know, whatever, uh, you know, how we're atomized as a society, as citizens, because power doesn't want people to get together. Power doesn't want a 16-year-old Swedish student coming to Edmonton and lecturing Canadians about the poisonous tar sands that this country is producing, or about the Kinder Morgan pipelines, or the Trans Mountain pipeline, and all the other things that liberal and conservative governments, uh, you know, have been doing uh, in this country. Power wants you pacified. Power wants you isolated. Worry about, you know, your next haircut. Should I go to that salon or this salon? You know, my friend told me that in that salon, you know, they also give a free manicure. So maybe I should go there. But, you know, you don't want to be satisfied with a manicure. You want to get a pedicure too. And that salon will do it over there. So these are the kinds of choices, you know, we're, we're offered. You know, should I buy this multigrain bread or this other uh, bread? You know, should I buy the pumpernickel or the rye? You know, consumerism becomes the dominant ideology and then people are not thinking about society, about what's going on in Ottawa, or what's really going on in uh, Washington DC. So Chomsky says it's very important for institutions of concentrated power to keep people alone and isolated. That way they, that means you, we, are ineffective. They can't defend themselves against indoctrination and propaganda. They can't even figure out what's going on. As long as the general population is passive, apathetic, diverted to consumerism or hatred of the vulnerable, diverted to consumerism or hatred of the vulnerable, then the powerful can do as they please. So this probably is valid for Canada as well. You know, there's an enormous amount of attention paid to, let's say, the Kardashians, or to the National Hockey League, or to uh, other, you know, d- diversions. So the Canadian Football League. Uh, sports is a kind of uh, replaces religion for a lot of people as an opiate of the masses. People in, in the U.S., for example, know more about their baseball teams uh, than they know about the, than what their representatives in uh, Washington. Uh, are doing on their behalf, so you have a, you know these what I call the media as a weapon of mass distraction. And it, they, it needs to be regulated. Uh, we, it, I think, corporate control media pose a serious health problem to the well-being of society, because if all you're getting is a pack of lies wrapped in uh, consumerisms and and uh, you know slogans about patriotism. Uh, people have no idea what's going on and then are easily uh, manipulated and, and controlled. <coughs> now, Ursula Le Guin was a great writer. I say was. She passed away a, a couple of years ago. She said, we live in capitalism. I mean, that's, that's the economic system that exists in the U.S. and uh, in Canada. Its power seems inescapable, Le Guin said. But then she added, so did the, the, so did the divine right of kings. Any human power can be resisted and changed by human beings. That is to say, this situation is not inevitable. This is not something genetic that we cannot do, you know, change. We can change the economic system. We can change the political system to be more responsive to people's needs. Do you have a housing crisis here in Vancouver? There's something called—I mean, it's laughable—affordable housing. You know, there—it hardly exists. I mean, this extends into the U.S., of course. Uh, Seattle, San Francisco, most—more most recently in Denver, Boulder, where I live, Boulder, Colorado. Housing, affordable housing, has become a real uh, crisis for many, many people. What a shame it is to drive past Hastings in the east end of Vancouver and see not tens, not scores, but hundreds and hundreds of people sleeping out in the open, where if you walk on the sidewalk, you see syringes, you know, that had been tossed by by drug users. A, A harrowing, you know, very, and I'm not, you know, I'm not dissing you, you know, as Canadians. It's worse in the U.S., it's much, much worse. Go, go to Southern California, go to Portland, go to Seattle, tens of thousands. New York City, my hometown, seventy thousand homeless people, seventy thousand people every night sleep out in the open or under a, you know under a bridge or under an overpass. This is in the richest country in the history of the world. Canada's not that far behind in terms of uh, you know actual wealth in fact. Uh, in terms of mineral wealth, unfortunately, uh, your country is number one in the world in extraction of minerals. Uh, And often this extraction of minerals is accompanied by enormous human rights violations uh, in Central America, in Mexico, in Papua New Guinea, and in many other places that most Canadians don't even know about. Uh, the, The minimum figure I've seen is... That 60% of all major mining operations in the world are Canadian controlled. On the high end, that, that figure is 75%. But let's, let's go with the low end one, 60%. So here's a country of less than, what, 35 million people? 35 million people with 60 control of 60% of the world's, uh, extraction industries. Now, you might say, well, that, isn't that a good thing for Canada? Well, it's a good thing for the corporate bottom line of Barrick Golden and these other big mining corporations, but uh, knock knock, there is an eco-crisis going on in the world. There is enormous damage being done to our mother, the environment. It's under attack by these corporations who are extracting more and more wealth using, incidentally. Tons and tons of fresh water. This is particularly true in uh, fracking, which is a different uh, extractive industry. I don't know if you have that here in Canada. It's like pandemic in the U.S. I mean, you can't drive anywhere without seeing these enormous uh, drills, you know, which pump in huge amounts of fresh water. So that that has contributed to uh, global warming, to the eco crisis uh, that we are. Uh, facing as a society uh, in total. Uh, Martin Luther King, Jr. talked about the fierce urgency of now, of now. Around this issue, which is planetary survival, is that kind of a marginal issue? You know, is it planetary survival, the future? You have children, you have grandchildren, you have friends, you have, you know, you have many connections. What kind of future are we preparing for them? if we continue on this path of extracting, 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 attacking, attacking, assaulting uh, Mother Nature as if there's no tomorrow. All in the name of accumulating uh, wealth. You know, Marx, not Groucho, Harpo, or Chico, but the other one, with a K, Karl, German spelling, he talked about the, the the werewolf, this is a direct quote, The werewolf hunger of capitalists, almost like a werewolf, they're almost bloodthirsty. Anything to maximize profit, no matter the damage to society. That's somebody else's problem. I'm a CEO of a big Canadian corporation. My loyalty is to you, my shareholders. You you bought stocks in my company. Because you want dividends. So my my institutional role is to provide you with the profits that I am generating. That's the Faustian bargain. And what happens to the environment down the line, that's somebody else's problem. I'm out of here. You know, I'm closer to the end than the beginning as it is. You know, I'm almost 75. So if I'm that CEO, that's the institutional push to keep this insane situation. Continuing, why do I call it insane? Why would a civilization undermine its own future? We are now in the sixth extinction. Species are being eliminated, are dying off at unprecedented, you know, uh, rates. You know, and this is not just about cute penguins and polar bears and walruses, you know, up in the Arctic or in, you know, the Canadian North. You know, it's going to be about us very soon, so that there's no sense of urgency. Now, I'm hopeful that because of brave young people like Greta Thunberg and also many others who have joined them in in the Sunrise Movement, in Extinction Rebellion, in 350.org, and many other uh, eco-groups in this country and in the U.S. and around the world, that, you know, the Uh, the elders who are supposed to be the font of wisdom and experience will wake up and pay attention to what's happening to our mother. You know, if your literal mother were under attack, would you just stand by and watch? Would you, you know, would you just make some, well, you know, I was, you know, into the um, Maple Leafs that were playing in overtime and I was watching the game. So I really couldn't bother, you know, I'm sorry, my mother's getting attacked. Uh, you know, maybe she provoked somebody, maybe she said somebody. What? Are you going to straddle the fence or you are you going you know, to do the right thing? You're going to rush to your mother's uh, assistance. It's like a no brainer. So our mother is under attack, it's under siege and we have to protect it for the future of the planet and for the future generation. And you know, you have these teenagers now wagging their fingers at you. What are you doing? What have you done? What kind of future are you promising for me to have? Just because you wanted to have, you know, that extra McMansion. So in, in the US, we have these, you know, there's, a, there's an enormous housing crisis. There's also an enormous amount of speculation in housing, which I think is going on in Vancouver as well. That is to say, absentee landlords. Uh, you know, who buy up condos and buildings and buy houses, you know, as investments and are they're vacant most of the time because the owners are sitting, you know, somewhere else, maybe even in, in the U.S. Same thing's going on uh, inside of uh, U.S. cities as well. Huge amount of speculation in uh, real estate and in in housing. We in the U.S., have aircraft carrier battle groups, we have F-35 fighter jets, uh, we have Trident submarines, we have nuclear weapons, not very far from the border by the way. Do you know Bremerton in Washington? It's a naval base there. The bad joke is that if Bremerton were an independent country, it would be the third largest nuclear power in the world after the United States and Russia. Just Bremerton alone with all the Trident submarines there which have uh, nukes. What if there's an accident there? Have have you forgotten Three Mile Island? Has Fukushima been forgotten? There's a Hanford reactor on the Columbia River, again not very far from the Canadian border, that has been leaking uh, radioactive materials uh, into the Columbia River. So this is, I mean, a huge, you know, side issue. I don't want to, I don't want to, um, you know, try and uh, minimize its importance. Survival of the species, I think, should be a topic that should generate an enormous amount of uh, interest and attention. And when you have political leaders, as I've heard in this country from you know, acro- acro- almost across the spectrum, uh, and certainly in the U.S., they, they obfuscate the reality by throwing this thing of jobs at people. Well, you know, it's, it's jobs. You know, we're gonna. If we stop, if we stop drilling, uh, if we stop extracting the tar sands, we're gonna. You know, we're gonna lose jobs. The fact of the matter is, if if you invest in sustainable energies of wind and solar, you will create many more jobs than exist in in the U.S. in the military industrial complex, but also in the petroleum and minerals extraction uh, industries in this country and in. Uh, the u s as well building schools, building roads, protecting the environment, building recreation centers, providing universal health care, providing free education. this will create more jobs and more real wealth for the general population, not for the sliver that is you know getting uh, making money hand over fist, so getting Getting organized is really important. Now, you have a, a group here. You know, I don't know what kind of um, actions you may undertake uh, as a group. Uh, it's great to be you know, to, as an individual, but when you have numbers, you have power. And uh, Bill McKibben, who's a, a great uh, U.S. Uh, activist, uh, he started 350.org. Uh, I, just to have a little plug, there's a new mag- a magazine called The Sun, that comes out of North Carolina. Uh, I ha- in the current issue, I have an interview with uh, Bill McKibben. And uh, he's a, a very interesting guy. Uh, he started 350.org, which now has hundreds of thousands of members uh, you know, across the world, uh, on his living room floor with a handful of students. That's how change has always started. Like the women's movement in the United States started uh, in 1846 or 8, I'm not sure. Elizabeth Cady Stanton and four or five women got together and said, "We demand our rights. We can't vote. We can't own property. We don't have a right to divorce. We don't get inheritance." Inheritance. That was the beginning of that movement. So, all movements for social change start with a few people and then grow and expand. And when you find kindred spirits, you overcome this loneliness and isolation, as I referred to, and atomization that, you know, power wants to uh, inculcate uh, in you. You just give up, you know, so you, you know, worry about, you know, you know, will the Canucks get into the uh, playoffs this year or not? And, you know, how does uh, Kwame Leonard Uh, leaving the Raptors affect the Raptors chances of winning the NBA title again, you know, worry about those things, you know, weapons of mass uh, distraction. By the way, I just want to acknowledge that uh, a comrade walked in, uh, Joseph Roberts, who's uh, standing right here, he's the uh, publisher and editor of the wonderful uh, newspaper magazine called Common Ground, have you seen it around? You can get great information. Uh, from this uh, magazine uh, in fact there's a terrific article on Leonard Cohen who's one of your great cultural gems that I admire uh, enormously who passed away a year or two ago so talk to uh, Joseph afterwards and I'm sure you could uh, get a free copy of Common Ground uh, into your hands and we, ha- we are connected in terms of exchanging information, I, can- I send him things uh, he sends me things and that's the way movements grow, that's how you know, we overcome isolation and uh, atomization. So let's see, Well, wow, God, it's already 11.15. I want to give you um, one example of uh, something extraordinary that happened in a country that I'm a little bit familiar with, uh, and that is the Republic of Armenia. I'm sure there are many Armenian speakers here today, you all look Armenian. Particularly you, yeah. Uh, it's a small landlocked, very poor country, under 3 million people. It's locked in the Caucasus. It's surrounded by enemies, I mean, people that really you know, wish them harm to some extent, That is to say, Turkey and Azerbaijan. So they're, it's a, they're in a very difficult situation. When the Soviet Union collapsed in, in 1991, what happened? Uh, not just the hammer and sickle came down, but the commissars the communists just changed their clothes and they carried on business the way they did before corruption cronyism uh you know favoritism uh, contracts to their friends and and that kind of thing so all of these now liberated independent free countries like belarus like kazakhstan like tajikistan like armenia like georgia like azerbaijan Estor- all of them they lapsed into a kind of new corporate uh, corporate capitalism. So the communists just changed their suits, you know, parted their hair in a different way, uh, but carried on business as usual. And Armenia was no different. Uh, I was there uh, in I was there in the Soviet period, and then I was there in uh, two thousand and seven, two thousand seventeen. And I speak Armenian, so that allows me a little more uh, insight into what's going on in the country. I I encountered a lot of discontent. People were very angry. I mean, this spontaneously would tell you, you know, as an outsider, as a U.S. person of Armenian origin, we we hate the government, they're corrupt, you know, they're ripping us off, Uh, everything is rigged, elections are a joke, you know, big money controls everything. Kind of sounds like the U.S. to some extent, but um, and then what happened? A member of parliament, not fairly well known, his name was uh, Nikol Pashinyan. He decided, uh, maybe thinking of Mahatma Gandhi's Salt March, he decided to walk across Armenia. Now you may think, wow, this is really you know impressive. It's a very small country, so it's not something you know out of the realm of possibility. And like Gandhi's salt march in 1930, in each town that he passed through, more and more people joined the walk. Finally, they reached the capital city of Yerevan, the capital of Armenia, and the numbers are in the hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands. This is in a country with less than three million people, hundreds of thousands of people in the street demanding change, demanding justice. Shutting down the airport, shutting down the railroad, the main railroad station, and all the metro was shut down. Uh, basically, the whole country was in a lockdown, people demanding change, demanding justice. And you know what? It happened. The government fell. Pashinyan became the prime minister. It's not to say it's not without its problems, but it's a much better situation than it was before. So, the people power still matters. Uh, We've seen that in Tunisia uh, in the last week where there's been uh, an election. It was Tunisia that had uh, a poor street vendor in December of 2010. His name was Mohammed Bouazizi in the town of Bouaziz in in Tunisia. He burned himself to death because he had been insulted and humiliated by government uh, officers who were putting the squeeze on him. They were, you know, asking for bribes. And he went to the ministry demanding justice. He was totally ignored. He killed himself. That sparked the Tunisian revolution. Within three weeks, an entrenched dictatorship of 22 years was overthrown. Ben Ali, that the U.S. supported right till the very uh, end. You say it can't happen. Change can happen when people organize and demand their rights. That's why community is so important. That's why organizations are so important. So Bill McKibben, that I was referring to earlier, I'm I'm coming back in a circle here, he says that every talk he gives, he's always asked the same question. The first question from the audience is, what can I do? And right away Bill says, you've got the wrong pronoun. Get rid of the I and substitute we because it has to be collective it has to be uh you know it has to be a larger group to have an impact so what can we do what can you do uh, as a group i'm not going to tell you what to do we have enough problems you know dealing with the rise of uh, crypto fascism in the us and the potential of uh, uh you know a, a possible coup uh next year i mean this I'm not overstating the case here when you have someone who who is as unstable as the current occupant of the oral orifice is, and when you have a mindless, largely evangelical uh, group uh, behind him that is following him. Uh, Have any of you seen Triumph of the Will by Lenny Riefenstahl? A masterwork of propaganda. It's the 1934 Nazi Congress in Nuremberg. Riefenstahl was a favorite filmmaker of the Nazis. Uh, Goebbels adored her. Uh, She was given all kinds of uh, uh, facilities to do documentary films to promote, you know, to promote the Nazi ideology. Uh, She was also an enormously talented cinematographer. She made this film about the Nazi Party Congress. Now, why do I say that? Because just before I came here, I was watching the orange-haired man uh, speaking in Dallas, Texas, to a large crowd of people. uh, And the, the look on their faces was identical to the look you will see if you look at this documentary. It's on YouTube, by the way. You can watch it for free. Triumph of the Will, it's called. Lenny Riefenstahl. Um, the exact same look that those Hitler worshippers had in the 1930s in Germany, the Americans at da- in Dallas had the same gla- glazed-over eyes and worshipful, as if they were in, pre- you know, in the presence of the Lord Almighty herself. Right? Very, di- very interesting to see uh, parallels, and you know, again. Why does this happen? Because those kinds of mobs, the crowd, as um, uh, Elias Canetti, the brilliant Italian sociologist, would talk about, the crowd gives those people who are fairly marginalized a sense of identity. I belong to a movement. I'm a trumpista. I'm part of you know something that's going to save this country and save civilization. Save us from socialism, you know, and other you know collectivist uh, ideologies. So it's really, um, I think, instructive again to look at the past and see how the past resonates in the present. In the present, and the crowd. There's a, a word in, in German. It's called Gemeinschaft. Uh, it it gives a sense of union to people who are otherwise. Uh, broken, who are otherwise, um, as I said, marginalized. So I'm, I'm not just Joe Schmo or Jane Schmuel. You know, I'm somebody. I'm part of a movement, and that gives me identity and strength. This is how dictatorships uh, form. Uh, this is how tyrannies are built. You know, on exploiting the most vulnerable sectors in a so- in a society that are not. Uh, well-educated, that are not, you know, well-informed, that if you, you know, people ask me all the time, how are the Americans falling for all this? Well, if your diet is Breitbart News and Fox and Red State and Infowars and other conspiracy theories, you're going to have a a pretty narrow view of the world, uh, you know, and skewed way to Uh, The right. You know, I I see that kind of media as posing a real public health crisis. Uh, You know, it is poisoning people's minds. It is dividing and rule uh, uh, and carrying out what dictatorships have always done and empires have always done divide and rule. You're suffering because of the blacks. You're suffering because of the Mexicans. You're suffering because of the Chinese. You know, blame someone else. You know, do not focus on what is actually. Uh, happening so those those groups are being manipulated, you know. And people stand up, you know. People do resist. Uh, I know I'm going over time here, but do you remember uh, Pastor Martin Niemöller? Some of you don't know his name. Uh, you'll know his famous poem. First they came for. Now who was Martin Niemöller? It's a very interesting background. He was a deco- decorated U-boat officer in World War One. After the war, maybe because of ex- his experiences, I don't know. Uh, he becomes a Lutheran minister, practicing Lutheran minister, and a member of the anti-Nazi resistance. And he wrote a, a famous poem. You know, first they came for the communists and the socialists, and I didn't say anything because uh, I wasn't a communist and a socialist. I'm going to change that in a second. Um, and he paid uh, a huge price. I mean, he because he was a war hero, they didn't execute him. But he was in Sachsenhausen and Dachau concentration camps from 1937 to 1945. Do you know about the White Rose Movement uh, in Germany? A Couple of kids at the University of Munich, at the height of Nazi power, 1941, 1942, when it really looked like Germany was going to win the war and that Hitler was invincible, they got a printing press and started rolling off uh, leaflets and and, uh, articles, you know, criticizing uh, the regime and the the famous graffiti on the walls of the University of Munich was that every word that comes out of Hitler's mouth is a lie. Well, we can say that about somebody sitting in the Oval Office right now in Washington, D.C. They were arrested, they were tortured, they were executed. They took, I mean, that's standing up you know, against tremendous odds. You know, as I said, I'm not going to lecture Canadians, but in the U.S., we're not facing, you know, the Gestapo, at least not yet. You know, we're not facing concentration camps. We still have an enormous amount of space to operate in. So we should be doing that. We should be engaging and not straddling the fence, not saying, well, you know, I can't get involved. It's very complicated. It's not complicated. You have a tyrannical ruler who is dedicated to maximizing profits for himself and his corporate cronies at the expense of the planet and the rest of civilization. That's our situation uh, in the U.S. So it behooves us to take action inside the belly of the beast. You're outside the belly. You can do a lot here uh, in Canada. You might think about, you know, a few... Fewer trips to the U.S. Uh, just to you know buy milk or gasoline or you know take cheaper flights from uh, Seattle or whatever you know the rationale is and I'm, I'm sure there are many reasons to go to the U.S. to go shopping. Okay, we're go- we're going to wind up. So he uh, Martin Niemoller, in a modern sense, first they came for the Arabs. I didn't say anything. I wasn't an Arab. Then they came for the Muslims. I, I didn't say anything. I wasn't a Muslim. You know, then they came for the liberals and the socialists. I wasn't a liberal. I wasn't a socialist. I didn't say anything. And then they came for me, and there was no one left to speak up. So that's, that's the moment. We're in a Martin Niemöller type of moment where we must stand up and speak out. Now, I want you to you know, get these books. Uh, I'm sorry to make a little commercial diversion here, Uh, but I think the real bargain are these four CDs of um, Nick Estes, you won't know who he is, a brilliant uh, First Nations scholar activist in the U.S. I just recorded him in Denver last week, Uh, Indigenous Peoples Resistance. We can learn a lot from First Nations. We can learn a lot from Native Americans in terms of venerating and respecting Uh, The Earth, as Chief Seattle supposedly once said, you know, we belong to the Earth. The Earth does not belong to us, but the capitalists believe it belongs to them, and so they are, you know, constantly thinking about it as a giant Costco. They see the planet as a giant Safeway, you know, where they go in, loot, destroy, and leave, and then let someone else clean the clean up the mess. There's a great line in the Great Great Gatsby by F. F Scott Fitzgerald. He said, they were sloppy people. They threw things everywhere and destroyed everything because they always knew there was someone would come along to clean up after them. Interesting book about capitalism written in in the early 1920s. Kianga Yamata-Taylor, you won't know who she is, probably African-American activist, The Power of Social Movements. It's a great program. And this is a two-CD set I did with Vijay Prashad of India on history and politics. It's about Kashmir. It's about Palestine. It's about the environment. It's about propaganda. Two CDs. So all four of these are here available for 25. So end of commercial message. Buy the books and the CDs. Thank you. Thank you, David. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you. Uh, after listening to your speech, I feel discouraged
0: and inspired all the same time.